Well, good morning, everyone. If you could go ahead and open up your Bibles to John. And we are in John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And uh, John chapter 8, uh, with John chapter 7, covers three to four days in the life of Jesus. Uh, it happens during the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Booths. Uh, six months from now is when Jesus will be put to death. So as we've covered before, John greatly expands this last season of Jesus' life. Chapter 7, chapter 8 happening basically at the same time on a couple of different scenes, but it's still at the same grand feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, uh, there's much there. It's hard to re recount everything as far as the Feast of Tabernacles. I'm just going to go kind of quickly. Uh, for you that have been here regularly, this will fit together fast. For those that haven't been here that frequently or are visiting today, compress it as fast as you can, all right? Feast of Tabernacles, one of the three required feasts by God's law that all of Israel had to come back to the temple to partake in. The Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, you basically bring your own booth, you bring your own tabernacle, and you set it up there around the temple of Jerusalem. It was all reminiscent. It is recapping the great exodus out of Egypt that, that God has redeemed his people. And during this Feast of Tabernacles, they, re, they go over all those key events. So they live in tabernacles as their forefathers did as they come out. They're camped around the temple. And they're at the temple. They replay, uh, recite, as we looked in Nehemiah 8 and 9, uh, where Ezra recites a lot of these events and just recaps where all these great major events of God pulling them out of slavery and bringing them to be a people of his own. Uh, we looked at how the, in chapter 7, Jesus says, I am the rock, I am the fountain of life. All this goes back to they had been talking about, right? God bringing Israel out, making water come from the rock. And now Jesus says, for all who thirst, come to me. And what is he saying? He's saying this type over there in the Old Testament of Israel coming out, the rock, the fountain, has come to its telos, has come to its end. I am the fulfillment of it. I am the substance of that. Now you must drink of me. Don't just look back. I'm in front of you. So last week we looked also there in John chapter 8, uh, where in 13 verse 24, he says that he is the light. And it's more than, more than you, what we often Think because when, once you put this with the Feast of Tabernacles, you see that this is majorly important because they're going over the light that God provided for them during the Exodus. God showed up in a pillar of fire, right? Uh, he would descend in the Holy of Holies, in light, in fire. When it was time for them to go, the, the fire would move and they would move with that. The fire came down on Mount Sinai, etc., etc. They would go over these things. They were even these nice, huge bronze uh, uh, lights that would go up above the temple during this day, during the Feast of Tabernacles, that supposedly, historians say, would light up all of Jerusalem. Now, of course, there was no electricity. It was oil and flame, right? But So this has been going on. So then toward the end of the feast, Jesus says, I am the light. What is he saying? Again, he's like, this type has reached its end. Now I am the light, and you must walk in the light. And you must obey me and follow me. So again, it's one of these I am statements. Not only is he saying that I am the light, but he uses that ego, eme, all the way back from Genesis 3, where God tells Moses, tell them I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent you. And Jesus uses that same vernacular when he says, I am the light. He's saying, I am God. So this is huge. All right, last week there at the, toward the end, verse 23 and 24, we also looked at how Jesus says, told the Pharisees, because after saying all these things, the Pharisees are still extremely judgmental. People are trying to decide who Jesus is. And, uh, but, and Jesus straight up tells the Pharisees, unless you believe I am who I am, you will die in your sins. And this is huge, because the Pharisees were supposedly, right, the purest ones of Israel. They were the teachers they were the judges of everyone else doing wrong. And he says, unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. And so there's a lot there. Jesus is saying, you can't make up your own definition to me. You must believe who I say I am. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. He is fully man. He is fully God. You start picking away at the definition, you no longer have a Jesus who can save. 
So they believe in him to a degree. He's right there in front of them. They know he's a real person, but they do not believe that he is who he says he is. And they do away with his deity in their mind. And if you do that, you have a Jesus that cannot save and you will die in your sins. So we looked a lot at that, at that, what it means to die in your sins. Every human will either die with all of their sins with them and face the judgment of God, or you will die with none of your sins and you will have, be immediately ushered into heaven. But uh, because you've received the righteousness of Jesus Christ, your sins have been removed. So you either die with them or in them or without them, none of them. And there is no in-between. A lot of people think, well, I'm pretty good. That person does not exist, all right? You're either going to die in your sins or you're going to die without your sins. You either have your standard on the, on the books of God, your works that are going to be revealed on that day, or your name's in the Lamb's book of life. And that, that's it. So Jesus says you will die in your sins, which means you will receive the wrath, the curse of God for all of eternity, unless you believe I am who I say I am. So we spent some time there last week. Now, let's move on to verse 25. That was highly compressed. Hopefully you're able to catch up. I was losing my breath speaking so fast. All right, 25. And we'll read through verse 34 today. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I've been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declared to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he would, had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, and slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word to study and to learn. And uh, may we focus on this word today, Lord. May we be edified by it. May we store it up in our hearts, Lord, so that we will have right belief, right behavior, and to help us to resist sin as well. Help us to see the focus of the book of John as is he is well describing who Jesus truly is. So there has to be no doubt in our mind that we can fully trust that Jesus is exactly who he claims to be. He is the Christ. He is God. He is man. He lived a perfect, righteous life. So we can rest in him for our salvation. And we can rest in him knowing that our sins have been taken away and placed upon him. And that he received the wrath and the curse on our behalf on the cross so that we might receive his righteousness. And God, we pray, as we looked at last couple of weeks, that we would be uh, people who walk in the light, not only in the knowledge of salvation of who Jesus is, but morally in this dark world that we would walk and obey and live as children of the light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's look back there at verse, uh, verse 25. Verse 25. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. Now, as we've looked at the book of John, if you look at one main theme of it, it's who is Jesus. Early in, ch in chapter 7, and uh, ch some in there in chapter 8, we see there, there's a lot of inquiry about who Jesus is. Uh, in chapter 6, we'll look at that some today as well, but people are like, is he a prophet? Uh, is he a good man? Is he the Christ? And then the Pharisees are constantly trying to attack that. They're saying, oh, he can't be the Christ because he's out of Nazareth. And he has to be born in Bethlehem. But he was born in Bethlehem. They say, oh, he's not from the line of David. But actually, he was. And so they're always trying to figure out who he is. Right? Even Nicodemus comes to him in chapter 3 after he's performing all these signs and miracles and then rightly discerns, God must be with you. So who are you? Or you couldn't be doing these signs. So there's lots of inquiry about who he is. Now, 
This, in, in verse 25, is a little bit different than what we've looked at so far about people inquiring about who he is. If you look at verse 25, so they said to him, who are you? But it's not, a, uh, it's not just a, hey, tell us who you are. This is definitely full of pride and arrogance. And the question would be more like, who do you think you are uh, telling us? So you have Jesus there telling the Pharisees, the leaders, members of the Sanhedrin who are in charge of the temple, he's telling them, I'm going to go away, and where I go, you cannot come. He's speaking about heaven. He's saying, you're going to die in your sins unless you believe I am. And they say, they, were, they don't probe further. They, they instead say, who are you? But it's not like, hey, would you mind telling us more about who you are? It's a who do you think you are? You are calling us, the Pharisees, the pure ones, the righteous ones, the teachers of Israel, sinners who are not going to go to heaven. So they are put off by this. They as do what Pharisees do, what normal Pharisees do. They exalt themselves, try to above him by saying, who do you think you are, right? We are the righteous ones of Israel. We are the teachers of Israel, etc., etc. Now, instead of acknowledging uh, their holiness, Jesus acknowledges their sinfulness. Instead of acknowledging their right place in heaven, Jesus does the opposite of that and tells them that they will die in their sins. They will not be going to heaven. And instead of listening to Jesus, they preposterously, easy for you to say, uh, ask, who are you? You know, it tells these things. Let's move on. Verse 26. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Now, I've kind of compressed this section because we've gone over these points so often in chapter 7 and chapter 8. Chapter 7, chapter 8, there's lots of recapping going on. Uh, but Jesus has been sent by the Father. He hears from the Father. He only does uh, the Father's will. and only does what is pleasing to the Father. And the Father is always with him to kind of compress that down. Now, who could rightly say these things? Uh, could a prophet say these things? And to a degree... Right? A prophet could. So a prophet could or is sent by God. They did not send themselves. Uh, they hear from God and they speak for God. But no prophet could say that he only and always does what is pleasing to the Father. So we see here again that Jesus is claiming to be more than just a human prophet. He is claiming to be perfect in the eyes of God perfectly pleasing to God, perfectly doing everything that God has commanded. He is absolutely sinless. And why is this important? Is it important that Jesus is absolutely pleasing to his Father, absolutely sinless? Yes, right? You see this type also fulfilled in the Old Testament when they had to sacrifice a lamb. That lamb had to be blemishless, spotless, without any error on it, right? And we see that type fulfilled going up spiritually. John the Baptist announces Jesus as a lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. This lamb had to be blemishless, not meaning that there, everything had to be perfect on the external part of Jesus' body, but on the inside, he had to be sinless. He had to be absolutely perfect. If Jesus disobeyed the Father, if Jesus ever sinned, would he be able to die for our sins? And the answer is no, because he would deserve death for his own sins. So Jesus had to be perfect, had to be perfectly pleasing, had to be without blemish, without sin. So there is no one in the Old Testament, as far as kings or, or Levitical priests goes or judges go, that could say they are without sin. But Jesus could. Jesus remained absolutely sinless. Now also tucked away in this passage, if you look at verse 28, we have another allusion here to the death of Jesus, that he is going to be lifted up. There in parentheses, it says, when he says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Again, another I am statement. 
and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. So we, we, we know this, we take this for granted sometimes, but it's just another time to point this out as we go through the book of John, that Jesus' death was of no surprise. Everything is on God's perfect, absolute timing. And he'll be put to death at the, the exact time when he surrenders himself to be put to death. Up until this point, they've tried to kill him several times. They will try to kill him toward the end of John chapter 8, but he will not allow it to happen because it is not yet his time. We've also noted how important these feasts are. Everything is happening according to them, and he will die on the Passover feast. That is when God saved the Israelites, right, from the wrath of, wrath of God with the sacrificial lamb's blood on the outside of the door. His wrath did not go in uh, to bring death. Because the blood, another one had been shed, another per one had died, the sheep had died to replace them. So we see that's going to happen, but he will be lifted up. So here he, he talks about how he will die, even that he will be lifted up. Now most theologians would say that it, it's, it's kind of two-part. It, it's, it's describing his manner of death, but it's also probably describing his exaltation as well, his ascension into heaven. So he will be lifted up. We saw this back in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, right before one of the most memorized verses ever, John 3, 16. But Jesus talks about the Moses that uh, at that time, we recall they were getting bitten by poisonous snakes. Israel, the Israelites were dying, and God's, God told Moses to put a bronze snake on a pole, and anyone that looked at that snake would be healed of their, their poison and would not die. And Jesus brings that type to an end in himself as well. John 3, 14 and 15. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The same wording that's used over here in John chapter 8. He must be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Just to make quick note, at some point we're going to bring all these types together in one sermon probably. There's so many here in John. But the snake was lifted up. Look at him, or you will die if you're bit by poison, and uh, you will live if you look at the, the, the snake, God's method of salvation. If you decided to make your own stick and put a frog on it over there and tell everyone to look at that, you would die, all right? Uh, God had provided one way of salvation for you to live and not die. If you'd been bitten by a snake, it was to look at this bronze serpent that was on the pole, and that was it. You could look at somewhere else, and you would die. You could look at the, over here with the pole with the frog on it, you would die. God provided one, all right? So Jesus goes on in John 3, 16 to say this is what's going to happen to him. He is going to be lifted up. He is the one that must be looked at. But instead of looking at here, it's believe in for eternal life. All of us have bitten, been bitten by the snake. We are all sinners who deserve the wrath and curse of God. All humanity must look at God's one method of salvation. If you make your own religion, you make your own idol, you put your own frog on a stick and say, here, I've got my own solution. Whatever else it is, it doesn't work. It didn't work back then. It will not work now. God provides one manner of salvation. It's through Jesus Christ. And he is going to be lifted up. And he's going to be ultimately lifted up as well. Uh, we also see this in Psalm 22. Interesting passage. We're not going to go deep into it today. But if you'd like to, turn there with me. Here you have, uh, you've, we have Jesus prophesying about his pending death, the manner of death. And then also in Psalm 22, the, the entire chapter, you have is extremely prophetic of the coming death of the Messiah. Now, of course, Jesus was not in, uh, God the Son was not incarnate, was not in the flesh during this. This is written by David hundreds of years before. So God would prophesy, send prophets. They would announce where Jesus would be born, how he would live, how he would die. And Psalm 22 is a prophetic uh, psalm about how the Messiah would die. Look what it says here. And it describes the scene on the cross. I am poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of, the, of dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers surround me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. 
And we, again, we don't want to dive into this too deeply just for time's sake, but this should be, if you have some good Bible knowledge of the New Testament and of Jesus' Uh, the day this right the day of his death all the things that encompass uh, surround that you're like this is describing i mean this could literally be over in the new testament describing what he faced and what's interesting about this is you have david describing a manner of death a manner of execution that was not even in existence then you did not have people getting crucified on crosses it wasn't even existing it would be like similar to, or far away, but like someone describing uh, the electric chair uh, 600 years before electricity was invented, all right? It's like, you can't do that. Well, you can't unless you're God, and you can see all things at one time, and you can tell this prophet to say this about what is coming to be. So here you have the crucifixion lifted up, pierced, and every, uh, shoulders out of joint, bones are out of joint. You just go through this, and uh, this is it. They're describing the crucifixion of Jesus uh, beforehand. So Jesus says, is describing this. He tells them what's going to happen to him. Uh, David has prophesied about this. So what do, let's go back to verse 30 here. What do the Pharisees say about this? That he is, he hears perfectly from the Father. He talks about what the Father tells him. That he is without sin. That he does everything pleasing to, to the Father. Look at verse 30. Wow, is this awesome or what? Maybe. We'll find out. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Now, if the chapter ended right there, we could shoot off fireworks and say, wow, that's awesome. Congratulations. That's wonderful. They have right belief in Jesus. They finally realize that he is the great I am, that he is the light, that he is the tabernacle, that he is the fountain, that he is the rock, that he is God in the flesh, he is the Christ, he's the son of God, and that by believing in him, they now have eternal life. But we, we come to read a little bit further, we realize that that's not quite the case. And we've covered this a lot in John, and we'll continue to cover this in John. But when, when John uses the word belief, or even disciples, he doesn't mean it how we often do. We, if someone says they believe in Christ today, uh, we often jump right at that, don't really dive into what all they believe or how they live, and, and we just can accept their confession right away, accept them as a full-on Christian. And John is very tedious with his wording. He develops that with the context of Scripture. So is this right belief? Or is this wrong belief? There's some kind of belief that they have in Jesus, but is it saving faith? Is the faith of these Jews, what they believe about Jesus, is it saving faith? And verse 30, right, seems like it. And many believed in him. However, we come to find out it's not the case. Now, you compare this to today. So many places you have come to. There might be an altar call, or, you know, high-pressure sales to come to the front, come to the front, right? And a person comes up, they, ministers don't know them at all, and they say, I believed in Jesus today. But within five seconds, they're turned around and said, well, Johnny, uh, I believed in Jesus today. And everyone applauds and claps, and he's getting baptized, and they consider him saved right away. That's, that's, that's often what we do. You'll find here there's going to be more probing more description of this and it's always interesting to how do you how do you proceed with this even as parents of kids right uh first time your daughter or son says i love jesus you say, right, let's baptize them tomorrow all right let's let's get this move right or do you, do you spend some time right develop this let's look at this belief let's look at this love and let's let's build it out let's see who jesus is right and, and let's see what this means about repentance of sin as well so think on these things as we're going through this today. All right, now, as, as John continues through the book of John, I'm going to kind of compress this, but these same people who supposedly believed in him, they go on to be a part of the many, or to be a part of those who are slaves to sin, as we'll cover that today. That does not sound like someone who has been freed from sin at all. A slave to sin. They're liars, he goes on to say. Uh, he calls them children of Satan. That doesn't sound very good. And uh, also we find that they will try to stone Jesus to death, the one they supposedly believed in. 
This is all the same people. So the people who supposedly believed in him also tried to kill him. Just from looking at that, do you think that was actually saving faith? Probably not. <laughs> right? Probably not. But they believed in him to some little degree there, John acknowledges. Now, this is really similar to John chapter 6, where we cover like John chapter 6 begins with thousands of people following Jesus. They believe in him as a miracle worker. They've seen it. Thousands are following him. He feeds them the supernatural uh, 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 exponential amount of bread and, and sardines and fish, right? Just from a small amount. Then they're like, oh, this must be the prophet, which is coming from Deuteronomy, the one that Moses prophesied that would come. And others want to make him king. Uh, others announce him as the rabbi. This is great, right? Wow, they would call him the prophet. They wanted to be king of Israel. They referred to him as rabbi, submitting themselves to his authority, supposedly. Then when he teaches, what do they do? They all, they all abandon him. They all go away. And they're even called disciples. John refers to them as disciples who, who leave him. Uh, so what, what does that mean? Again, it's not full saving faith. They believe in him to a degree. And this is important for all of us to analyze as well today. Do you believe in Jesus like they did? Or do you have true saving faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who he says he is? Look at, uh, look at verse 31. Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. All right, so he's still talking to those who supposedly believed in him. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples. So first of all, let's uh, make sure you understand what abiding means since it is a sign of a true disciple. Uh, the word abide means to remain, to continue, or to last, to endure. This is abiding. And usually it's, it's uh, something more added on to that. It's within close relationship. So it's to remain, to continue, to last, uh, to endure, and it was with a close relationship, all right? So this is what it means. So Jesus says, they, they said they believe in him. John acknowledges that they apparently believe in him. But verse 31, Jesus wants to dig deeper. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. Now, this teaching of abiding is extremely important to gaining clarity about the Pharisees' belief. Because in just a few minutes, all this is happening in the same day, this is happening in the same conversation, uh, these believers will be rejecting his word. When you reject the word of Jesus, are you abiding, remaining, enduring, staying? No, you're doing the opposite of that. You're rejecting his word, and when you reject his word, you reject him as well. So, who is a true disciple according to verse 31? Only those who abide in the word of Christ. So they are the ones that would continually remain faithful to the word of Christ and not go against that word. They were okay with some of the words of Jesus. They believed in that Jesus. But then when Jesus teaches further, more words, they're no longer abiding. They're no longer remaining. They're not enduring. They're not in close relationship. They're going to try to kill him for what he said. All right, very revealing. Uh, now, what about belief? Are we supposed to believe in Christ or abide in Christ? Don't answer out loud. The answer is both. All right. Are we to believe in Christ or are we to abide in Christ? And, of course, that answer is we're to do both of those things. Um, this, this, this is we are to, to believe in Christ for our salvation. You find that a lot. But we are to abide in that belief and remain in that belief and not move away from that belief. In John chapter 6, also here, we find that their lack of true faith was revealed by their lack of abiding. And this was not only true of then, it's, it's true, as now, true now as well. Many people that you and I know claim to believe in Christ. But truly, you could probably put a lot of the people that we know in some of those various categories of people who believed in Christ, but they did not abide in Christ. They did not remain so what does it mean if someone says they believe in Christ, but they do not remain? They don't abide. They don't stay. They don't endure. Or did they lose their salvation? 
that's not the case, right? What God has done, no one can undo. If God has saved a person, that person is truly saved. Jesus Christ has died for their sins. Holy Spirit has regenerated them. They are safe in the hands of God. No one can take them out. They will be raised up on the last day. So what does it mean when a person says they believe, but they do not abide? Well, I think it's pretty clear. There in John 6, here in John 8, it reveals that they're not true believers. We often call them today false converts or false believers because they might use the word Christian, they might use the word disciple. Uh, some of them were even using the word dis, uh, uh, disciple or believers. Uh, these things sound good, but they were not abiding over time. So they would be a false convert. And many of us here today, many of you guys that have been saved here or at Pecan Creek or earlier on, you acknowledge that you were a false believer. And now you have true saving faith. And you're abiding in that, right? That's wonderful, but it is something we need to be aware of. Um, look at John. Go over to 1 John. Hold your place there in John chapter 8. Go over to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19 through 24. 1 John 2, 19 through 24. That may or may not be coffee I was drinking today, if you've been keeping up with John Piper. Okay. <laughs> All right, First John 2, 19 through 24. They went out from us. <clears throat> they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. So notice the emphasis here that John, it, it, it'll be obviously written by John, but you see the same type of wording being used. Uh, they left. They did not continue. There's not this abiding uh, Verse 19, but they went out that it might become plain that they were, that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, that, that is the Antichrist? He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If you have heard from the beginning, if, if what you heard from the beginning abides in the, you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. Now, this is very similar to what we're finding over here in John chapter 8. Notice how he describes true and false believers. Uh, those who confess, but over time, left that confession and did not adhere to or abide in what they had heard at the beginning, it is revealed that they were not truly of us, uh, speaking of the believers. They have left not only them physically, but they left the faith. They did not abide in what they heard. They didn't abide in that gospel. They supposedly confessed, but they left that confession. All right. Uh, verse 24 says, true believers continue to abide in right belief. And there, even in 1 John, there is a lot to this, that acknowledging that Jesus, who Jesus truly is. If a person rejects that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah, Christ, the Savior, who is God, who has come to save us, if they start playing with that definition, John says they are of the anti-Christ. If you're rejecting the Christ, you're opposed to Christ who has come. So there's a lot there in that passage. It goes really well with John chapter 8. Speaking of true disciples, abide in, continue in, remain, endure faithfully. All right? Let's move on to verse 32 back in John chapter 8. Verse 32 and verse 33. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So we remember Jesus has already said, if you do not believe I am, you will die in your sins. That was huge. They have to have a right belief in him or they're going to die in their sins. Uh, here, Jesus says, accuses them basically of being slaves now, again, these were the Pharisees. We learned from Scripture that, in general, they're, they're wealthy. 
They consider themselves very righteous, consider themselves the judges of others, and they run the temple, they run all the things of God there. And yet here, Jesus is calling them slaves. Now, what do they do? They immediately pull the, uh, their, their trump card that, that we are children of Abraham, and, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. Now, this is an interesting passage. It can mean multiple things, all right? Uh, some people say that, that they were so braggadocious, so prideful, that they were denying the historical enslavement of the Jewish people. There, there is that possibility there. Uh, had Israel ever been enslaved before? And the answer is, of course, yes, right? The Syrians, the Babylonians uh, have, uh, even right now, they're under Roman occupation when this is written, uh, Greece. And don't forget Exodus, right? Uh, the great Exodus that is built on them being slaves and God redeeming them out of slavery. So is, is that what they're saying? I, I'm not exactly sure. I lean towards there's something more to this that they probably understood and acknowledged that they had been enslaved. It seems like they might be catching on to what Jesus is saying here, that they are spiritually enslaved, that they're spiritually in darkness, and that they're, they're, they're spiritually enslaved to wrong religion. They're not actually right, because that's when they claim, we are children of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved. It could be that they are claiming to be a part of the remnant those who have been truly faithful to God all along is another possible uh, way to look at this. I lean toward that could be it, all right? Now, most likely the Pharisees are catching on that Jesus is accusing them of not knowing the truth and being slaves to a false religion, most likely. Uh, during the feast, Jesus has claimed to be the rock. He's claimed to be the light. He's claimed to be the, tab he's the tabernacle as well, fulfilling this. And, but now... He claims it is his truths that will set people free from their slavery. However, the slavery that Jesus is speaking of is not of one nation holding another nation down, but that of sin. As we have seen, Jesus has been steadily revealing that he is the fulfillment of so many elements of the Exodus, the manna, the rock, the light, the etc., etc. Now, even the redemption of the Israelites out of Egypt. He is saying, if you go back to verse 32, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. All right? So he is claiming, again, this is that Feast of Tabernacles. They're reviewing all these facts about what God did for their forefathers. And now, again, this is going to be spiritualized. It's, going, it's escalating. How are they going to be set free? Jesus is saying, don't keep looking back to coming out of Egypt. I'm telling you right here in front of me, you are slaves to sin how can they get released from being in slavery of under and in sin only through jesus christ uh he says and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free what is this truth well jesus says in john 14 6 i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me now who rescued the israelites uh, so when they were slaves and set them free from Egypt, it was God. And then who can rescue an enslaved sinner and set them free from sin? It is only God. And notice again that Jesus takes that physical comparison that they were very privy to during the Feast of Tabernacles and elevates it to spiritual. How can we get free from sin? Only by a supernatural work of God. And that truth is right there in front of them. Jesus is standing there. Look at verse 34, John 8, 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We note again, Jesus repeats the word truly. It doesn't mean that these words are more true than the other words Jesus has spoken. Jesus can only speak truth. There is no falsity that ever comes out of his mouth but it is a way to get more attention to that moment, particularly truly, truly, like he's honing in on this. Listen closely, focus in, let me get your attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So the Pharisees say, hey, you're calling us slaves. We are not slaves. We're children of Abraham. And then he looks for the proof, right? If you're children of Abraham, truly, you would not be practicing sin, but they are still adhering to this genetic 
connection to Abraham, but yet they're living in sin, practicing sin. What does that mean? It means that they are enslaved. So in this passage, um, there are two tests that reveal if the profession of faith is real. It could go for us as well today. If you're sitting there today, consider these things, young and old. Number one, true belief results in a state of continual submission to the teaching of Jesus, abiding in his word, okay? So you're continuing in this state of submission to the authority of Jesus, to his word. If you're rejecting who Jesus is, if you're rejecting the word and commands of Christ, then this is not abiding in. This is rejecting, all right? Number two, the true belief results in breaking free from continual enslavement to sin. So if you are still continuing to practice sin, and this is who you are, and yet you're confessing to be, as they were, children of Abraham, or you're confessing to have believed in Jesus, but you're still continuing in sin, and nothing has changed except you said you believed, then this is not true salvation. You must abide in his word, submit to his word. You must see your sin, repent from sin. If you're living as an unregenerate sinner and yet claiming to be a Christian, these two things don't go hand in hand. You, my friend, would be what's called a false believer, a false convert. You have, in the Bible, we have belief and repentance that come together for true salvation. If a person confesses to believe in Christ but remains in their sin, that is not salvation. If they're enslaved to that sin, we are set free. God gives you a new heart that desires to love and obey him. When you believe in Christ for your salvation, all these things are happening within that moment. You get a new heart. You're believing in Christ for salvation, and everything is changing, rearranging. What you used to love to do as a sinner, you hate to do that now. Will you still sin? You will occasionally go into sin. We know that to be the case, but it's going to be totally different. Uh, I remember R.C. Sproul saying years ago when he got saved one day, uh, he tried to go back and do the same things he was doing that week. And for the first time ever, the things that used to bring him pleasure, he hated now and felt horrible about. Why is that? Because the heart of stone had been pulled out and the heart of flesh had been put in. And the things that used to bring, bring him pleasure now brought him the opposite, displeasure. All right? So these are two, two signs of true believers, that you will remain believing and that you will not be enslaved to your sins. Um, going, let's see, what does it, being enslaved to sin look like? Let's look at a few of these passages. Make sure you look, up, look these up with me. Stay with me on this. What does it look like to be enslaved to sin? A few passages we're going to look at briefly. Uh, we could obviously go a lot further into this, but I just want to, to look at this because this is important for all of us to ask today, young through the oldest here. What does it look like to be enslaved to sin? Because if you're enslaved to sin and yet calling yourself a believer, these two things are oxymorons, all right? They're opposite of each other and diametrically opposed. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 has a good, good compression of a, lots of a, a good description of who and what it looks like to be enslaved to sin. So verse 1, and you were dead. Now this is, this is Paul talking to believers in Ephesus, past tense. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, we've looked at this passage many times before, and we'll continue on. It's one of my favorite go-to ones to describe the natural sinful state of man. We are spiritually dead. Uh, we can't bring ourselves back to life to get right with God. We are naturally dead. Following Satan, this is a person who is enslaved to sin. Following Satan, following other sons of disobedience, all right? Following the course of this world. And, uh, but also, look there at verse 3. It is also... Uh, living in our passions of our flesh and carrying out the desires of our body and mind. Uh, in other words, doing exactly what you want to do. So what you find when you look at this is that some of these are obvious, like, oh, yeah, well, they're following the, with the prince of the power of the air. 
They're following other sons of disobedience. But then you get to verse 3, and it's like they're doing what they want to do. And at the end of the day, that is what being enslaved to sin is. You do what you want to do, what bring, brings you pleasure, and that is sin. You are your own God. You set your own rules. You do what you want to do. Uh, sin is doing what you want to do. And for a person who has not been regenerated, they're doing what they want to do, uh, their own passions, what their mind and body wants them to do, and it is not right. It feels like liberty, but it's actually slavery. Uh, follow me a couple of more of these. Titus 3, verse 3. Titus 3, verse 3. In a very similar way here, Paul speaks in the past tense. And again, this past tense is important because these are he's, he's saying you were like this. And hopefully we can say that as well today, if, that we were like this, doing whatever we wanted to do and not submitting to the Christ's word. But that was then, and now we're different. Titus 3.3 3 speaks very similarly. He says, for we ourselves were, past tense, once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days away in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is another description of what it looks like to be enslaved to sin. All right? And again, some of these you look at like, oh, obviously, right? Oh, man, the malice. Ooh, that sounds bad. Envy. Oh, hatred, right? But then you look back a little further, similar to our Ephesians passage, slaves to various passions and pleasures. And it's important to understand that sin is pleasurable. If it wasn't, then no one would ever sin. If sin tasted like cauliflower, we would be good to go. All right? No one's going to mess with that stuff. Uh, but, but sin is pleasurable. It's enticing. It goes down like honey, but it rots in the gut, the proverb says. It tastes good for a moment, but that pleasure is fleeting, right? Uh, sinners love to sin because they enjoy it. And that's part of being enslaved to sin. Part of, enslaved to sin is not always going to be a person who, who is a mass murderer. Uh, a, a person who is enslaved to sin could be a mass murderer, but it could also be a person who is just seeking their own pleasure. And I say just, but that's huge because they put themselves above God. They put themselves above everyone, and they only want what's good for them, what brings them pleasure. That is a slave. You are a hedonist who wants only what you want out of this life. Slave to sin very many different shades to it, all right? Uh, one last passage in regards to that. Look at Romans 6, verse 20 through 22. Romans 6, verse 20 through 22. And you'll get to look at more of this in your discipleship uh, today. Uh, Romans 6, verse 20 through 22. Paul speaks much of this. We're just going to touch on this briefly. Jeff's been doing an in-depth dive on some of this. That is a Bible study. Uh, chapter 6, verse 20 through 22. For when you were slaves of sin, notice the past tense, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, they could do nothing righteous. They were slaves of sin. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. Wow, beautiful passage here. So remaining in sin, remaining a slave to sin results in death, spiritual death, eternal condemnation, dying in sin, and that everyone we, we read here is either a slave to sin or a slave to God. And you even have that, that pictured, right? It's a type, it's not full and complete, but with, when Israel was a slave to Egypt, they were set free by God to go and worship God. And ultimately, uh, the world is still divided up like that as well. People are either naturally objects of God's wrath, remaining slaves to sin, or they have been set free. How do you know if a person has been set free? They're abiding in Christ. They're staying faithful to that gospel message, who he truly is, and they are living in repentance. 
And even when we talk to people and when you talk to people about their salvation, uh, when we do membership interviews, even for the church, the elders sit down with people. It's, it's, it's interesting, right, to ask, like, when were you saved? And uh, that will be a question we'll often ask. You've been asked that kind of a thing. And, oh, when I was X amount of years old, you know, I heard this sermon or blah, 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 and went down or front or, or my mom at home or et cetera, et cetera. And you know, that's always interesting to me, of course. I mean, it, can be, it can be right on. But I also want to know where they're at right now in front of me because I can't go back and determine was that true faith. So right now, who do you say Jesus is? And right now, do you repent of your sin when you sin? Or in other words, are you abiding? Are you living in belief? Are you living in repentance now? This is the person I have in front of me, and this is what I want to know. Are you abiding? Are you repenting? So these are important things for us to consider. Lastly, just quickly, let's have a couple of minutes. Uh, verse 35 and 36, back in John chapter 8. Um, you know what? We'll just hold up right there. No, 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 I'm going to complete it. I can do it. I can do it. All right. <laughs> 35 and 36 will bring it to an end. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The Pharisees, though, of Abraham's lineage were slaves to sin. They only escaped from that slavery. And the only way to remain free is to be set free by Jesus Christ. We could go further into that, but Paul's there for today. So in summary, our passages today... All believers are not true believers. This is important for us to take home, put it in our mind, realize, and don't just accept a superficial, I'm a believer. Those whose belief does not remain have not been saved. Likewise, those who remain slaves to sin reveal that they are not true disciples of Christ. A person who is saved has believed in Christ for salvation and repented of sins and will continue to believe and repent of their sins. Abiding, continuing, enduring belief and repentance is a sign of a true disciple. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for our time in your word today. We've covered a lot. God, but I pray these things would resonate in our own mind. Uh, and may we be a people who abides in you, who truly reflects being a disciple of Christ. May we not have fickle faith that is not true saving faith. God, but I pray that that you have brought true faith in us, and we can rest now in knowing that, yes, I believe that Jesus is the great I Am, that He is the Son of God, that He is the Christ, He is the Messiah, the Anointed One, who lived a perfect, righteous life, who died on the cross, who took my sins upon Him, so that I will not have to die in my sins, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven. That is my Savior. God, may we have that right faith, that right belief. May we maintain it. May we abide in it, no matter what comes against us, Lord. And God, I pray that we would be a people quick to repent of sins. May we not try to conceal them as Adam and Eve did. May we not try to hide them, but may we be quick to confess because they're eating us up inside. May we confess our sin, rightly speak of it. May we turn from that sin quickly, Lord, because that is not, we are not slaves to sin. We have indeed been set free. We thank you, Lord, that you have done what we could not do. Uh, you set us free from the bondage and the chains that we could not break in and of ourselves. And we thank you and worship you for that. In Jesus' name we pray.